I am just 16, and it is the summer of 1967, and I'm walking out of a bank, my passbook in hand, on Chancellor Avenue, the main drag in the Weequake section of Newark, New Jersey, and I run into Lewis, a boy I barely know. And that night, we wind up at a party, spend the night, and then quickly find ourselves living together for a few weeks in August, unchaperoned at a friend's house, and talking about getting married. It strikes me now just how fast this all went for us. But it was an era of rapid change, and there was nothing unusual about the world being turned upside down on a daily basis back then. It's harder for me now to re-enter that frame of mind and to remember just how seriously we all took ourselves our love, and our convictions. And just how serious Lewis was about pursuing a life of political activism. When we fantasized about our future together, he warned me that when we got married, I'd have to prepare myself to be the wife of a revolutionary. (laughs) Oh, really? I actually said that, huh? Actually said that. Okay. And I found it both exciting and terrifying. Mm -hmm. Yes, well. I didn't know what it meant. Would we would we live with guns? What would ah, we, you know, yeah. would we be riding horses in the desert? I mean, what? <laughs> yeah. You All know? right. In the caves in the mountains. Lewis and I were both recruited by SDS, Students for a Democratic Society. And we were both part of a growing activist movement of people fighting social injustice, protecting civil rights, and protesting the war in Vietnam. Lewis and I had our special time together in August of 1967, and it was just a few weeks earlier in July that the very streets of Newark were broken by scary days of civil unrest that changed the face of the city forever. The story goes that African-American cab driver John Smith was double parked near a police car. He was dragged out of his cab, beaten and arrested by police. This set off a wave of violence and looting in the city that continued for three days. The National Guard was called in, and although I wasn't in Newark then, my friends told me they saw tanks rolling up the streets not far from the old neighborhood. And yet after all that, I arrive in Newark sometime in August. And looking back, I'm really not sure why my parents would have let me go back to Newark at all. It was only a few weeks removed from storefronts being torn down and cars destroyed in the street. But somehow, in August, I wound up with Lewis at one of our friend's houses, either Gary's or Marshall's. In the course of my phone call with Lewis, he was certain it was Gary's. During that call, I asked him what else he remembered. Like, how did we spend our time? What did we eat? Anything and everything. But I remember about the bedroom, I don't even remember the bedroom, except that I know we were in it, and I thought how, you know, this forbidden thing we were doing, it was like, how are we getting away with this? And also, there was a bathroom attached to the bedroom, which I had never experienced before. I thought how, um, I wrote a poem about it when I got started, but the poem is about you and me. I mean, this is what, 48 years ago, and I still remember lines from it. And one of the lines was, in the bedroom, with an adjoining bathroom and a spacious double bed. 
I will move with all deliberate speed to your child's side and spend a long time asking for forgiveness. And my parents thought that I had gotten you pregnant and that you'd have a child. <gasps> That's what they thought. They were very literal-minded about it. I knew the reference to forgiveness was about things that happened later that caused a lot of sorrow. But right now, we were just at the beginning. What do you remember about that bedroom? The bedroom had the bed and the dresser and the mirror, and it had this bathroom that you could go to without leaving the bedroom. I thought it was so cool and luxurious. Oh. Decadent is the word I think I was looking for. We, yeah. we, it was like a decadent way to be behaving. <laughs> and, and I also knew that, you know, we were in somebody else's house, and they probably wouldn't like what we were doing there. And not that I cared, but I was aware of it. It was like that made it naughty and kind of maybe more exciting. Did we sleep together in that double bed every night? Yes. We didn't have sexual intercourse in that bed, but we slept together in it. And do you think that we took showers together in the bathroom? Oh, I don't think so. You had rules. It had rules. And you stopped me from doing things that I would otherwise, as a randy 17-year-old boy, would have wanted, would have wanted to, if you had let me, would have gone further. I had started out thinking that the details would bring it all rushing back to me. But as we discussed those days, and as I kept asking questions, I realized I was after something else. I wanted to hear him say something that, would confirm that I wasn't alone in thinking our time together was special, beyond simply a shared memory of a first love. It wasn't exactly like trying to rekindle anything between us. It was just trying to find a way to get a handle on why it felt so important to me. Once our summer was over, Lewis went away to Goddard College, and I went back to high school in Fords, New Jersey. We exchanged letters. We were in very different places. This is what I wrote to him about being out of touch with my classmates at John F. Kennedy Memorial High School. Fords is lonely. All of them sadly hear a different song than me. What should I wear to the football game? That sort of thing. But school was less painful today because of you. Because you've done something incredible to me. And things just don't get me down anymore. I can tolerate people with their penny loafers and shining faces. Lewis responded with a letter that included a love poem. Dear Binny, listen, it can't be done. This four-year separation, I can't do it. And if I have to choose, I choose you. Come to me. And I'll give a life and some little else a ride to vast spaces and past open places, and through and beyond for all time, come with me, and we'll trip on the wings and be gone to great things of grass and earth, sky and rain, wind and hope, time and future, and we will have each other. It will be enough for several, shared only by two. I love you. His letters suggested he was in a 
college hippie paradise. Like he wrote, my roommate and I bought some colored lights for the room. We're getting candles and incense and all kinds of stuff, giving the room a personality. He told me that he was smoking lots of pot and that there were naked women in the bathrooms. And then this from him. Last night we used a Ouija board, and I'm a believer now. It was spooky and beautiful. We asked if the good, the beautiful, and the true exist in an objective reality. And it said, a flower exists to be loved. Meanwhile, I was in a suburban high school hell, forced to deal with compulsory pep rallies for the football team. We were each wrestling with the challenges of a long-distance relationship. Our plan had been for me to apply to Goddard and join him there. So despite the increasing disconnection in our letters, in November, my parents drove me from New Jersey to Vermont for the interview and to see Lewis. It seemed an endless drive on winding roads, my father at the wheel of his big Oldsmobile, And while my parents stayed at a motel just down the road from Goddard, I stayed in Lewis's room and slept with him on his single bed. Something about the place terrified me. I was intimidated by the look and feel of the 60s in full swing. Goddard seemed sprawling and full of confident hippie girls and swirling skirts. The place scared me. I wasn't ready for this freewheeling paradise. I felt so isolated and young, unable to compete, and something was also way, way off about our connection. Nothing felt quite the same as it had in Newark. And he probably sensed how awkward I felt. And after that, things really weren't the same. When I returned to New Jersey and my god-awful high school, a few weeks passed with no letters between us. I remember tremendous sorrow and confusion. And this is my letter from November 14th. Dear Lewis, I was getting worried that you hadn't written. I hope it's not a diminishing feeling because my feelings haven't changed. Just strengthened and increased and all that. The Donovan concert was beautiful. Donovan was fantastically gentle and they were burning incense on the stage. It was a kind of put-on thing to do. He was wearing this long white dress, and they had him stand in a bed of flowers, Christ with a guitar. I'm applying to University of Wisconsin, but right now I just want to think about you. How casually I mentioned this new direction, uh, Wisconsin, one that would take me far away from him. Had I told him about that, that I didn't want to go to Goddard after all? And I didn't know it at the time, but of course, he was living a whole new life, losing his virginity, falling in love with a girl at school, and becoming more radicalized. Our separation had proved too difficult for both of us. Our call lasted over two hours, and at some point, we went over how we wound up meeting later that year and how it would mark the end of this tale of first love. Lewis was back in Newark for a bit, and he wrote to ask me if I would meet him there. He said he'd been missing me and regretted our breakup. 
So once again, we found ourselves in a parent's bedroom, Marshall's father's bedroom. But it was not good. Lewis was cold, angry, demanding, felt I had always been at tease with him. I remember only what I wore, my silk paisley pants and tank top, and my driving to Newark and then back to Ford's. And the rest was a memory that I couldn't and didn't want to revive. So we made it through the deconstruction of our shared first love, and I asked him to send me his yearbook. I wanted to look at pictures of him and other people, hoping always for new feelings, memories, or clarity. When the yearbook arrived, I practically tore open the packaging. There's a few pictures of Lewis in various student groups, was the Lewis I felt I'd known, mostly in profile, animated in discussion with others. But the class photo itself, the one in the stark light and that angle of head one sees in yearbook pictures, I let out a hearty laugh. All I could see was a child. I loved a child. Oversized glasses, soft mouth, beetleish haircut. And the laughter pierced the bubble of the insulating sense of gravitas that goes with teenage angst. Around that time, author Claire Dieterer's memoir, Love and Trouble, A Midlife Reckoning, came out. She recounts becoming haunted by her sexually adventurous girlhood and rereads her diaries, and she begins to envy that girl. Now middle-aged, she wants some of that back in her life. I was so grateful for her candor. She wrote of a feeling that was, quote, baked into her, a yearning of such intensity, she wrote, that I was stupid and hot with it. And when she recognizes the feeling, she identifies why it's so familiar. It's like being young. She writes, I felt a sort of abstract yearning. Stupid and hot with it, mm -hmm. then and now. And in the call with Lewis, I was also moved by how powerful all this reconnecting had been for me. There was a sense from everyone I spoke to that we had all lived in a very special circumstance and that that time was imprinted on all of us. Weekwake was a special place that allowed it all to blossom. But even without really being close all these years. We all felt the same way about that time. And my long phone call with Marshall was certainly true to this. It's one of the great regrets of my life. The people who I've been just profoundly connected to and then lost touch with for no good reason, you know. I mm -hmm. mean, there are people who you grow away from, okay, that's clearly not the case with you and I. I mean, I feel like we connect, you know, uh, we just connect. Right. You know, I feel totally connected to you. And it isn't just because we share a path. It's right. because we get each other, we like each other, we enjoy each other. We, we're simpatico, you know. And, yes. And we can, yes. we can communicate with each other. And all of those things are, are, are precious and they're rare. And so it's tragic that we, we wasted all those years in terms of, of nurturing that relationship. 
I had become so immersed in the past, some large part of me transported back and living in 1967, 1968. I was very caught up in all the emotions. And as much as I had been trying to get Lewis to spill his guts, here went mine. I love everybody so much. I, I feel, I think it started with hearing that Gary died. Yeah. I realized how much I loved him. And yeah. then I realized how much I loved you. And then in talking to Marshall, I realized how much I loved him. And I started to feel a sense of loss and yeah. bereftness. And I mentioned it to Marshall, although he and I never had that kind of relationship I had with you, but he was very important to me, very important to me. And mm -hmm. I shared this feeling with him on the phone recently. And I said, I just feel this loss. Like, do you know what I mean? And he said, it's tragic. Um, he felt very sad that he had lost touch. Wow. Um, uh, almost got me speechless here. Um, I felt that way too, but I've also thought to myself that I was like being silly or that that's just how life is. And, you know, that I never really thought that anybody else felt that way that that's oddly comforting um do you I, feel that way too yeah there's this very special time of my life surrounded by people who were special to me in a way in an intimate kind of a way i've had other other friends and other relationships and uh lots of them good lord um but nothing, I don't think, has ever touched the intensity of that time, that vibrancy. And I don't, it's just like sometimes I really miss that. And I've never been able to replicate it. And I don't think I ever will. And it's, so that I can see Marshall using that word because, that, and you talking about feeling bereft, you know, a sense of loss. I guess I haven't allowed myself to really feel it because, it's not a pleasant feeling. And then part of me was trying to tell myself that, you know, that's just, you're being silly because that was, yes, but that's just how life is. You don't get to keep those things. I'd always had it in mind to try and contact Gary's sister. When we finally spoke on the phone, we shared memories of Gary. Did the family ever go away, I asked, for periods of time in the summer? At first she was hesitant, and then, oh wait, we did go to the Catskills, she said, and Gary stayed home, maybe for two weeks even. That little question finally answered the how of the possibility that Lewis and I and Gary had actually stayed at Gary's house, not Marshall's. We talked about Gary's dark room in the basement. You know, she said, 
There are many more pictures of Gary's memorial art exhibition on my daughter's Facebook page, and she directed me there. I hungrily moused over the images, pausing to make each one bigger, so it looked like when you first entered the exhibition. There was a glass case with books and papers protected inside. I spotted one of Gary's Harlan Ellison books, and then a book called The X-Files, a book called Semiotics. It was a reproduction of an Escher print and a bright orange robotic arm, the belongings of some philosopher-scientist. In another case, what looked to be a textbook, Projective Geometry, and an assortment of small shapes he'd created with fragile sticks and strings. I could imagine the incredible focus, intensity, and tenderness that Gary would have applied to these creations. In the pottery section, where there were rows of white clay hands, some in the shape of fists and some reaching upwards imploringly, some vessels had a hole in their middle looking more primitive. Larger brown and silver pieces look like sculptures that might line an art gallery on the Starship Enterprise, <laughs> jagged edges, gleaming surfaces, very otherworldly. And then walls and walls of sketches and elaborate diagrams of geometrical shapes. And then there was an open metal cabinet, presumably where he kept his ongoing projects and supplies. And then something startling, a paint and clay smeared pair of jeans and a t-shirt mounted on a door like a body, as if waiting for him to step inside them. You know, Gary was quite an influence for me uh, when I when I was a teenager because we did photography together, and Gary Gary knew a lot more about it. He knew the science of it. He knew how to process film and uh, print film in darkroom, and and he taught me all that. And we and we did it together. Um, so he he really was a close friend and. Maybe I didn't appreciate the degree to which a friend like that is, is so rare uh, back then. I, it was a cliche from jazz guy that it was too beautiful a cat for this world or something like that. When I first became Gary's friend, he was like an outcast, a complete outcast. I don't remember how it all happened that we all kind of like gravitated towards one another. It just sort of happened. We all just formed this little tribe, and we were a combination of, of the weirdos and the hipsters and goofballs and the, the crazies. We kind of rolled into one, you know. He should be here. He was in my life for 50 years. He should be here. I've lost a lot of things, and I've lost a lot of people and relationships, and I've lost people to death, and my parents and friends, and certainly a lot of the relatives, but... I don't think I've ever, you know, this is like my peers, this is like my colleague, my age mate, my partner in some ways for decades. There's so much. And then to be so suddenly not there. Delivery? I didn't even hear them come. Oh, wow. Is it? Oh, wow. Oh. 
you know the woman that organized the memorial for Gary? I had asked Maybe her to probably. send me. I don't know what it is, but she said he had done all this pottery. I'm kind of nervous. I don't know why I would be nervous. I don't know. It, it just makes me emotional to think about this is actually something that Gary created. Oh, oh. Two objects, two objects. Oh, look how they're so sweet. They're just little cups. So this is the larger piece. It's just good to sort of see a range of his work because these little ones are his tinier ones. Oh, yeah. Look at that. It's nice. beautiful vase. It's kind of like there's a chocolate brown, like, it looks like chocolate icing. Oh, I love these. I love these. It's almost like um, waiting for them kind of made it even better. I set up Gary's pieces on a small tray. I placed the large vessel in the middle and the two smaller cups on either side. The late afternoon sun lit up the half of the pieces that Gary had chosen to cover in a smooth dark brown glaze. Gary was a special caretaker on the campus, a fix-it guy, a repairer and preserver of all things mechanical. And they said that if he was working on your computer overnight, in the morning, you might find an origami bird gently perched on your desk, and that's how you'd know that he had been there. Thank you for listening to 10 Days in Newark. Special thanks to Marshall, Eben, and Lewis, and all our interviewees who generously gave their time and opened their hearts to us for this project. And thanks to Rod Richardson, Ray Terlaga, Emrys Eller, Susan Bordeaux, Mickey Silverman, Mary Jo Orzek, Smithsonian Folkways Recordings, WPKN, and the Association of Independence in Radio. This production wouldn't be the same without the city of Newark, New Jersey, and Weequake High School. Philip Roth, Dave Van Ronk, Harlan Ellison, Mary Carr, Claire Dieterer, Megan Daum, Ruth Ware, and a host of memoir writers who gave me courage, 
Special thanks to author Andre Asimon, who understands the idea of a soul lover more than anyone. And thanks to our friends and family for their patience while we disappeared for a while. Okay, a few years. This podcast was produced by Scott Shapley and me. I'm Binnie Klein. Music from Binnie Klein, Scott Shapley, and the wondrous H.L. Tanberg. For more information, 10daysinnewark.com. 10 Days in Newark is dedicated to Gary and Barbara.